Bonjour, hi, I'm Pascal Auclair. I hope this talk supports you in your practice. J'espère que cet enseignement vous sera aidant. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed. Vous pouvez me soutenir en cliquant sur le bouton sous ma photo. Your support is greatly appreciated. Merci. I'm a little curious to um, see what's going to come out of this uh, talk because there's many things I want to share, many ideas. I have no idea how they're going to mix up because they're all mixed up in my head and on paper. <laughs> so I wish you good luck. <laughs> Please uh, buckle up. I want to talk some about um, uh, self-worth and, um, and forgiveness and equanimity and compassion. It's a big program. And uh, I hope to maybe bring, maybe bring some new uh, liberating understanding to your view of uh, life or self. So we'll see how it goes. So maybe I'll start with the you know, the last thing that uh, was, uh, has been in my mind is uh, I just had a little exchange with somebody and we were talking about self-worth. And the question uh, that arose was, can, um, can this practice help develop self-worth? Very uh, valuable question to ask. And um, so, the way I, underst I understand this, the way I'm going to present this, is that, yes, I think definitely, because... Um, maybe I'll start with the precepts that we took coming here, you know, the precept, uh, precepts of harmlessness. So if, by doing this practice, and in the Buddhist, Buddhist practice, these are some, some of the practices, the practice of... Uh, um, integrity and, uh, and ethics. So, uh, and the Buddha was often saying that's the first thing he taught before teaching meditation. He would say to people, "How's your life? How are your actions and words? If they're all messed up in a way, it's going to be really hard to sit and be quiet. It's actually not possible. The mind is going to spend a lot of time justifying itself and uh, being anxious about." You know, are they? Am I going to lie? Going to be discovered? And you know, and it's going to be. There's going to be anxiety and worry in the mind. So, so uh, you know, check out the way you live. Uh, if your harm, you, you, your actions, your words and actions are harmful to other. Uh, and so, try these basic rules. Basic, um, we would, could think of prescription for happiness. See if you can uh, be clean at that level and see what's going to happen. So just at that level, if somebody engage in a, in a more of a moral, I'm, I'm a little hesitant to use the word because it can be very charged, you know, but um, more ethical way of life, then the result would be that self-worth would go up because of being, uh, sometimes we call it in Buddhism, the bliss of blamelessness. So you could talk about self-worth just there. You know. So the fact that somebody can lay their head on the pillow at night and think, you know, I didn't hurt intentionally in these ways, at least. You know, uh, This can bring a lot of rest to the mind. And, of course, it's going to build up the self-worth. You know. And um, as we do this practice of... Um, uh, Noticing what are the mind states that are there. This is a bit of what we're doing here. We're noticing the mind states that are present, and we're noticing the effects of these mind states. So the effects of agitation on me, and, uh, the effects of impatience and all this. So when I, I notice that impatience is actually not helpful, resentment is not helpful, and I let this go slowly, I at least I stop feeding it. I wake up to it. I'm not led by it blindly, but I abandon it again and again. And I start to notice that, 
you know, attention, being attentive, uh, calming the system down, a bit, pacifying the mind, opening the mind-heart by caring, bringing this, whatever is available there in, in attention, caring. when I become more skillful in this way, the way that I use the energies are more skillful, the self-worth is going to go up with that because there's going to be a more skillful way to live. There's you know? um, one uh, um, very respected teacher was saying, <coughs> the questions that you ask yourself uh, are that or that you ask a wise being when, if you encounter a Buddha, the question that you ask are very, very important. They're going to determine the answer they're going to give you, you know. So if you have a little time, I was saying, if you have a little time spent with a wise person, let me tell you of a question that would be very useful to ask. And the Buddha would say that in his conversation with the people. He would actually tell them, no, don't ask me that. Ask me that instead. This is going to be more useful for you, the answer to that question. So, when was the beginning of the world? No, don't ask me that, you would say. Ask me what is skillful and what is unskillful. What is unwordly leading? What is liberating? What is entangling? Ask me that. This I'll tell you, and that'll be much more for your benefit than any other question you could ask. Yeah. And so, then you would get the answer. The answer would be, Generosity is skillful it, it, in the sense that it's beneficial mm -hmm. for you and for others. When it's there, it's always welcome. Yeah. Discernment, wisdom is skillful. You know, uh, kindness or um, friendliness is always welcome. <coughs> Hatred, envy, never useful. You know, there's a bunch of them. Never, it's ne there's not one time where it leads onward. It's entangling. Yeah. So when we start to clarify this for ourselves and become aware of what energies are there, because we might know that, but we don't know it in action. We don't know it because we're taken by impatience and resentment and we act on it or you know, things like this, wanting to gain. You know, I want to gain, I want to have this at all costs and I'm going to organize my, manage to get it, you know. And so when we become more skillful in our way of living, then of course the self-worth is going gonna, gonna to go up, you know, because I live a life, I see, I can see that my actions don't hurt, they help myself and others. Yeah. So as I see this, it's become much more easy to be myself. Yeah. And now that's the all other part that's to me, very specific to Buddhism here. And I love that part of the teaching, is um, the question of self-worth, at some point, becomes irrelevant when wisdom develops. And that's interesting. So first, it's very important. I want to have a good view of myself. I want to value the self, you know. So I manage to... Uh, organize a life where it feels it's valuable, this life, because it's helpful, it's not uh, in the way of, uh, of happiness for other people, you know. But after this, there's another point where it changes, where self-worth cannot even be a question anymore because of a deeper understanding that comes in. And the understanding is that The me thing is not really something that I want to say exists so much. Why? Listen to this. Because when there is in the mind um, aversion, hatred, the thoughts that gonna, are going to come are not so much mine. They're the thoughts of hatred. When there is generosity in the mind, or well-wishing, respect, as you want, the thoughts that are going to come are going to be those of generosity. 
So it's not so much me anymore. It's what state of mind, what mood is running the show. What make, makes me think, what makes me act, what makes me speak. You know? So the me is just a, it's more of a concept, an idea. The reality, when you check it out really well, is that it's, an, it's a state of mind that is going to be acting and speaking. And this becomes the center of the soul. In a way, generosity is not so much mine, mm. it's of the public domain. It, I, ca I don't have to claim generosity, I just have to recognize, cultivate it, and make it arise in here. You know? So it's generosity that will do the thing. It's, uh, <coughs> it's receptivity that will consider and understand. It's wisdom that will <coughs> speak, and sometimes not. Sometimes it'll be something else, another energy. Yeah. So slowly in the Buddhist practice, that's what starts to happen, is we don't take things so much personal. It's not about self-hatred or self-worth. It's about what's skillful and what's not skillful. What is worth cultivating and what is worth uh, abandoning. That's kind of how you start seeing the world. So you kind of remove the glasses of me and who am I and you know, am I worth something? And you, you, you cannot drop these and you put on, we call it, could call it the <coughs> Dharma glasses. And then I start to say, so what's here? What's leading the show? You know? <coughs> so that kind of leads me to the, um, maybe the idea of forgiveness. And so, um, around forgiveness, you know, if something happened, if there's something I said, something I've done that was harmful to myself or to others or to both, then uh, going towards guilt, I'm a bad person, I did this, this is bad, that in, in the Buddhist view, would be some kind of selfing, some kind of ego trip. It's about me, me being such a bad person, and, and it's more piling more kind of delusion, we would call it. Craziness, make me making. In, the, in, the, in Buddhism, it's not so important. What's important is uh, the state of mind that did it, and the recognition that there was harm. That's extremely important. Sometimes we talk about Buddhism as the middle path, the middle path between the extremes. One way of to talk about the extremes in this case is the extreme of irresponsibility. I do whatever I want, I don't take responsibility for anything. And the other extreme would be guilt. I'm bad, so identifying with actions and things done and said. And the middle path, which is something that I find extremely beautiful, maybe one of the most beautiful thing, but very tiny little line there in the middle where there's an acknowledgement of what was done or said, but not falling in the extreme of guilt, which is a wrong use of mind and energy and time, and not fall in the extreme of irresponsibility. Ah, whatever, I don't mind, you know. I don't know, there's so many ways you could be irresponsible. But this line in the middle where there, there was this that was said, or this that was done, and it was hurtful. And the recognition that uh, in a similar situation, maybe this wouldn't be done anymore. You know? And is there something that can do to repair or not? Sometimes there, there, there isn't. And so I don't know if you can see this fine line between the two, where you avoid losing energy but you move forward for the better of everyone. You know? And to me, that's one of the most liberating movements of mind. There was something that I've done many years ago, and for years and years, I was guilty of it. Bad person did that, you know, did that, and you know, tried to justify and reorganize the past and wish the past was better, different, and you know, like all kinds of energy spent in all kinds of direction that was not useful. And one time, <coughs> I was sitting on retreat like we are now, and uh, Sylvia Borstein, one of the teacher, uh, said something. She said, 
It could not have been otherwise. Things were such that it could not have been otherwise. And then it just hit me with my particular thing that I was guilty of, that, wow, it's true. At that moment, there was that amount of stupidity in this mind. This is not personal. It's stupidity belongs to everybody. <laughs> you know, that lack of wisdom, there's no lack of wisdom of what leads to happiness truly and what leads not to happiness. Yeah? So there was a lack of wisdom there. That's what was available. There was the greed, the wanting to get something. And there was the possibility of having it by saying and doing this and that. You know, that was, you know, and, and, uh, and there was not mindfulness either. There was not an attention to what was happening. So that we say that when there is mindfulness, when there is attention, it's the good condition to, to have access to all, all the wisdom, even the shaky wisdom, even the things we just heard or almost thought recently that are wise, with attention, they can come back. When there's no attention, like this, when I'm led by greed and I'm under the spell or the trance of greed, of getting at all costs something, then all the wisdom, even the best wisdom, is out of the window. Mm -hmm. The values are out of the windows. Cannot, I don't have access to it in, in mine at that time. I cannot remember that I care for others. Because this becomes so it, you know. I'm uh, fascinated by something. And even my values have uh, disappeared in that time. So then I could look at this and say, wow, this was what was happening. then." The conditions were such, the inner conditions of this being, the outer conditions were such that this is what was done. And clearly, it was not for my good, nor for the good of others. Clearly, I can see this very clearly. But at the same time, it didn't feel like it was, there was a relief in that. It was like, wow, today, these conditions would not happen again because there is just a little bit more wisdom, because there is just a little bit more paying attention to what's happening, just a little bit more discernment, <coughs> and just also, also a little bit less fascination for things, knowing that things are unstable, things change, things are... So it's not so much worth getting things at all costs, because... <coughs> and by things, I keep it very general, because I don't want to say that material thing, or that person, or that recognition, it could be anything. But any of these things, by paying attention in my practice, I've noticed that they're all un unstable. That what somebody thinks of me is very unstable. I could control everything so they really think good of me, and somebody will say something, and whoops, then they'll think some, but something else of me. That objects, material things, are unstable because they break or because I really want them, and once I've played with them for uh, half an hour, then I'm bored. I want something else, you know. And people, I see them as beautiful voice, and they sound well, and they smell well, and they, they really, you know. And then after a while, I start to see other things in them, you know. And so everything has, uh, is unstable, unreliable. And so my delusion that this will really bring me happiness if I get it is as lessened. Yeah. So I can see this action that was in the past and say, clearly unskillful, but it doesn't have to bring me down. It can actually liberate me and say like, wow, and if there's something I can do to help fix the damage, then I would do it. And if there's nothing I can do, then I have to accept that this is how it is. But the guilt trip is a loss of energy. Yeah. This is, uh, in a way, the mistake of identifying a person with an action and limiting this to that. And that, of course, goes outside also. It's not just about me. If I really just identify a person with an action that they've done, 
somebody that has harmed me, and I equate the action, which was really reprehensive, harmful maybe, and I equate this with the person, it's exactly equal. Maybe there is some delusion in that. Maybe this, it's possible to bring some wisdom and say, this was so harmful, and this is something else. This is a being there. More than that, with wisdom, what I be began to clarify with the practice for me, which is a practice of clarification of what's really going on. In Buddhism, we talk often as seeing things as they are. This is a kind of a mysterious <laughs> saying that is used a lot. In Buddhism, what we practice, or in mindfulness, we practice seeing things as they are. But what are they? <laughs> well, that's what you discover. <laughs> things as they are is uh, one of uh, my teacher Joseph says, your thoughts about your mom are not your mom. And this is the kind of clarification we start to do. It's that when I think about the person, it's not so much the person it's, or something of the past. It's not the thing, it's as if I was going to visit the thing of the past. This is a production here and now of the mind. This is an image that comes to mind. Yeah? And so, and I equate everything together. The thoughts of my mom, my mom, and she even might be in a coffin, you know, but still the image of her saying this, all this to me is the same thing. Well, there's, there, we have to bring at some point some discernment. These are very different things. One is a thought. The other is a living being, <laughs> you know? And these are very separate things. And so I become to clar I start to clarify this. This is very liberating. If I'm stuck thinking that this thing that happened last year is really there last year and I go visit, no. It's a, a, a mind moment. And I start to see that thoughts actually are very ephemeral, aren't they? You know, they cross your mind. Three minutes later in meditation, totally not accessible, you know, the, this funny idea that crossed your mind is gone. This funny image or impression is completely gone. It's a blip in the mind. It's, it's an extremely unstable little moment. But if I'm deluded and think that it really does exist, and it's the same thing that happened in the past, I make this together, this is not for my well-being. Do you, can you see a little bit what I'm saying? So when I'm sitting here and I think of something, the sanity is to know that thinking is happening. This is very, in a way, I find it extremely profound. For me, that's how I would describe it. This is the most profound and liberating teaching or uh, vision of clarity one can have. And at the same time, it's, it's extremely superficial, you would say. But to actually recognize that thinking is happening when it's happening, instead of being in the trance of the future, me alone in an hospital for elderly with nobody visiting me, <laughs> is not a natural place where I'll end up. It's a thought here now. This is a generation of the mind here now. That gives me a lot more power than if it's actually a real place and it's coming. If I know that it's a thought, and I have seen thoughts being so, sh of all things, maybe the most shaky things, and also the most seductive and you know, uh, charming, so like charm in the sense of a spell, you know, can put a spell on it. But if I gain clarity of vision that I know when a thought is there, that this is an image. I don't have to, to fight against my future when I'll be alone in that hospital. I just have oh, thinking is happening. Yeah. This is what's happening. There's a generation of an idea. This is all what's happening. What's happening here now? Well, that idea gave rise to you know, tightness in the throat. So tightness in the throat is another thing. Can I take care of this? You know, just realize, oh, it's tightness, the body's tight. And allow breathing to happen again. Yeah. So what I'm talking about in a way is deconstruction. Deconstruction of the illusions that we get caught in. You know. And 
I don't know if it's your experience, but there's a lot, we sit here and it's in one illusion after the other, and we get caught here and get caught there, and, and yeah, and we can deconstruct this very uh, with attention. This can be totally de de deconstructed, and freedom can be gained. This is this practice. Now it's interesting because in meta, in the wishing of uh, what we use concepts, we, we use, we create ideas and then we feel friend, friendliness towards the <laughs> ideas. But uh, the way we could describe it, it's that it's a good use of the thinking mind. It's the good use of uh, imagination, making images. It's a good use of it because it produces it generates uh, wholesome states of mind. And so that's the, that's the only difference. When I'm sending metta to my good friend, it's, I'm not sending really to her. I'm sending it to an image. But it's being generated, it's being cultivated in the neurology. It's uh, changing the plasticity, the form of my brain in a useful way, in a liberating way, not in an entangling way. Yeah. I remember having a kind of an insight around this. I was uh, on a retreat doing metta, and I was walking outside, uh, sending well wishes uh, to a good friend of mine, uh, uh, of mine, and um, and I was thinking that you know. As I s told you, the purification sometimes comes in. It's not so pure, you know, <laughs> like it's the dirt comes out, you know. <laughs> uh, so I was thinking, I was sending, uh, wishing of well-being, and, and in my mind, I was like, yeah, but you should actually be well, you know, <laughs> like, you <laughs> be well now, you know, like it's time to be well. <laughs> there was some kind of like, like, okay, you know, I've sent the wish, I've been patient, now be well, you know. And, uh, and at some point, I just realized, like, wow, this this, what's this violence, you know, imposing my own pace on somebody else and on, and, and also I realized suddenly that the violence was actually internal. I was, the violence was just here. My friend was thousands of kilometers away, you know, but I was here being impatient with who? With this mind, with the images in this mind. The impatience was just in here, you know. And I realize, like, wow, so that person, as I'm doing this, this is a part of my heart, you know, this is a part of my life that I'm rejecting. You know. And can I actually allow this to be there as it is? And maybe this allows me now to touch a little bit on equanimity. Um, one of the equanimity phrases is um, that I've used a lot is um, uh, you have the right to your own journey. When I feel that I'm being violent towards somebody, wanting them to understand something in the way that I want them, or do something, or you know, some kind of imposing of my ideas about how life should unfold on reality. Sometimes I spend time just to remember this. You have the right to your own pace. You have the right to your own choices. Although I wish happiness for you, I cannot control it. You have the right to your own journey. So as the metta, this is another practice that uh, we can do to uh, bring some peace to this mind that is maybe suffering from attachment to a certain result or a certain, s certain outcome or something like that. Equanimity is also, um, so this, um, 
the stability of mind, this capacity to be with the difficult without, without falling in the extreme of despair and, and agitation and all kinds of different uh, perturbation, if I can say that. <laughs> this ability to be with the difficult and stay stable and this ability to be with the, with the pleasant without losing it. I like it, I want more of it, it's mine, you know, just like, wow, pleasant. And this ability to, to be with, uh, it's uh, something that one can develop through the intention of developing it. You know, like earlier today when we were doing the difficult person, I said, can you, at the beginning of this practice, set the intention to stay balanced? <coughs> Setting an intention can be very, very powerful to say, actually, I'm going to do this but I'm going to do this with balance. It doesn't mean it's going to be an absolute success, you know, but at least there's some consciousness, some clarity about this. So I don't go in, you know, I can say like, no, actually it's very important to have balance of mind. I recognize this, that without the balance of mind, I'm not going to be able to do much. You know? So I can set the intention. But equanimity, the stability of mind, also is a result of wisdom. And then I'm kind of coming back to some, somewhere at the beginning of the talk where I was saying, so the wisdom, the wisdom of knowing deeply uh, impermanence, the fact that things are fluctuating, changing. When the heart, I would say, has seen this with um, a stable mind, not the kind of superficial mind that we have most of the time, you know. Enough, enough attention, enough uh, presence to actually complete tasks, but not the meditative presence that has uh, an awareness that, is, uh, that has depth to it. Not like a cork on the, on the river, you know, going a little there, a little there, a little there, but more like a rock. This is the meditative mind. When the m very quiet mind uh, is there for experience, for phenomena as it's happening, we start to see how changing it is, how it changes all the time. When there's this deep seeing of this, there's a letting go. We don't, we're not hooked so much by things because we know they're unstable, they're changing. So I'm repeating myself a little bit here. When we see this deeply, that people pass by, ideas pass by, emotions pass by, impressions pass by, perceptions pass by, there's nothing that doesn't pass by. The present moment passes by, is always gone, replaced by a new present moment. You know, perception even, like I'm sitting here and I, I love this, of these retreats, I want to go in another one. Twenty minutes later, get me out of here. <laughs> I'll never do this again. You know, I'm a good meditator. I really got the hang of this. I'm good. I'm so bad. Yeah, everybody's so quiet, and I'm bad. You know, the perception they change. You know, I like this person. This is a great person. Of all the people here, this this would be my body. You know, like, what is? They're weird. <laughs> you know, the perception change all the time, or we're unsure, you know, of our... So when we see that everything that happens at every level is changing all the time, uh, then there's a, a, the wisdom kicks in, and that gives birth to some equanimity, because we're not hooked so much on things. So this is one of the things. Another thing that we start to notice is that things are conditional. This is a very well-known thing in Buddhism, you know, cause and effect, causality. That things arise when the conditions are right. That's the only way they arise. It's not as I, when I'm very deluded, think is that they should be there because just because I want them. They should be there for one con. They need only one condition. I think they should be there, so they <laughs> should be there. You know, this is when I'm at my most deluded. You know, but when I have wisdom, I know that things arise when conditions are right. And I know even more, I can see with discernment that some conditions I can control and some I just can't. And so 
I find equanimity in that. I can find equanimity because I know it's not so much that I want it or the fact that I'm excited about it or that I hate it that is going to make it disappear. It's something else that's going to make the change happen. And so I can calm down and look at the situation and say, okay, this is happening. It's not good. What can I actually do? Okay, I could actually make one phone call. Or this is something I can do. Or, oh, I can't do anything. The ser serenity prayer is very beautiful for this, you know. And I always get it totally, uh, I, I don't get the right words together, but the idea is, you know, I want to, uh, uh, you know, change the things I can change and accept the things I can't change and be able to see the difference. Mm -hmm. To me, the serenity prayer is a, is a prayer for equanimity and wisdom. Yeah. And so this balanced heart, it's something that uh, we can uh, experience when there is the wisdom. So when something happens, I, can, I think I can call forth as much wisdom as possible around it and say like, okay, the house has burned. You know? Is there something I can do about it? Yeah. There's nothing I can do about it it not being burned, you know, it's burned, you know. So I can, sometimes I can go and fetch this in my heart, instead of going the usual synaptic route, ro you know. And it doesn't mean that everything's going to become all good, and there still can be emotions. I can acknowledge the presence of an emotion, but I don't have, I won't have to follow it. I know that I won't have to follow it. Okay, this is, this is really distressing. But I, I don't have to act on the distress, you know. I can recognize what's going on. I can feel what I feel, you know. And can I be there as it is right now, you know. Another thing I wanted to talk about some is, uh, it's all related in there, is uh, compassion. I don't know if I've said that here, but um, compassion doesn't, is not born in a vacuum, out of nowhere, just because I would want it, for example. You know, we think this, I want something, it should be there. You know. It doesn't happen like this. It happens when there's a contact that is sustained enough, close enough with suffering, and stable enough, maybe, with the stability of heart. It's a contact that we say will actually um, touch the heart. And there's a contact with suffering that touches the heart, then the heart can actually, in a way, open. What happens usually when there's a, the encounter with suffering is that it comes with resistance. You know, that's the opposite of wisdom. It's the resistance is that there's a shutting down, uh, there's a blaming, there's a, there's a resenting the difficult. Yeah, that's kind of the usual standard reaction that we'll have. There's something that is difficult, a difficult idea comes to mind, a difficult situation, a difficult person <laughs> comes, and there'll be a shutting down, a reactivity in the mind. When there's reactivity, there'll be despair, there'll be anger, there'll be wanting to destroy, there'll be hatred, there'll be fear, there'll be blaming the other, blaming self, all these things. If there is stability of mind, maybe some interest, some, some kind of quality that can help there, some acknowledgement that in life there will be what we call the vicissitude or the great winds. There will be the winds of pleasure, the wind of pain. It's part of this reality. 
You cannot, some people have tried it, some people with lots of money, they've tried to have only pleasurable experience. It just doesn't work for them either. Even with all the money, it just doesn't work. It's not possible. It's part of the nature of this reality to have pleasant and unpleasant, to have gain and loss. You know? And there's a bunch of others, you know, uh, you know to receive blame and receive uh, what is it? praise, you know, that comes with that. You know? And so if when there's the touching of suffering, there's some attention that is there, some interest, some, some accept, acceptance that it's part of reality, yeah. then it gives way for compassion to arise. And, you know, in the general way we think about happiness as uh, getting what I want. Happiness is there's something I want, I thirst, you know, and getting it is happiness. In Buddhism, my understanding is that's not how we talk about happiness. Happiness is the capacity to meet reality. Sometimes pleasant, sometimes unpleasant, sometimes very often neutral. And in the three cases, we tend to overreact. It's pleasant, you know, you see somebody here that you find uh, somewhat attractive, soulmate. <laughs> I have to talk to them. How can I reach them? You know, without talking, <laughs> you know, I'm going to have lunch next to, you know, so the mind grasps, you know, when we look outside like, ah, my camera, you know, can I get my cell phone out without anybody noticing so I can actually, you know. I remember it, I had a, a, a meeting with a woman on a retreat one year and it was, uh, it was uh, fall. And she came to the meeting and she came in and she's like, oh, Pascal, I had this wonderful idea. I'm going to knit this uh, sweater and it's going to be uh, orange and yellow and some red in it. And I, anyway, I see it, like I can't stop thinking about this. I haven't knitted for years, but now I want to knit, you know. And I was like, oh, yeah, how did that arise, you know. And then, <laughs> and then she thought, she's like, there's this tree outside the meditation hall. It's huge, you know, and it has orange in it and red and yellow in it. And, and I can't bring it home, you know, so I'm, I'm going to knit it. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to wear it, you know, like this desire to keep something going, yeah? So that's the kind of the tendency of the mind, you know, something pleasant happens and we don't have the wisdom to know that, unfortunately, like the other things in life, it's impermanent, you know? The tree, the f leaves will fall, but also I'm going to depart this place. You know, the tree will stay there, you know? And so there's always this longing to keep the pleasant going. You know, that's kind of the overreaction that we often have. And it's good to see it happen. And it's good to see it also when it's not happening. Oh, look, there's something pleasant happening and there's no holding on to it. With the neutral, we tend to get bored, to miss it. There's nothing happening here. Come on, you know, give me something, you know. And with the displeasure, I don't even have to talk about it, you know, when it's unple unpleasant, we get all worked up, you know, you destroyed my fun tonight when you said that, you know, I was having a good time until you, you know, or I, you know, and it gets very dramatic. And so the description of compassion, of not of compassion, but happiness in Buddhism is actually the capacity that we have to meet reality as it is with all the fluctuations in it, yeah. And, the cap and this is happiness. So the happiness of a, you could say, of an open, and the word I want to use is dégagé in French, is a cleared up heart, you know. So that you can actually meet the difficult, stay stable, yeah. And again, what it allows, it allows for tremendous energy to be released. I don't, I don't lose all energy and worry and resenting. I can actually do something about stuff, you know? This is really good. So I can actually be of help in the world. If I see something that is painful, where there's oppression, let's say, I can actually have access to all this being, all the potential of this being to do something about it. 
instead of despair, resent, start hating. Yeah. So I don't know if there are any uh, any questions about uh, about what was mentioned up to now. It's it's kind of an over. I understand what you're saying, but it's kind of an overwhelming concept for me when when you say everything changes, nothing is permanent, and and then I kind of get lost. Well, what what do you anchor yourself in? Yeah. Everything is always changing, and yeah. Yeah, it's kind of the opposite thoughts, I guess. I yeah, it's a good question. So, what do you anchor on? I think that the vision of the, uh, what we call impermanence, and the vision of this, the clear vision of this is very progressive. That's probably a good thing. <laughs> but the more quiet you, see, you get, the more you start to see how things are changing. changing. And you actually get okay with it, I guess. <laughs> and at some point you even see that as you're sitting here, you know, moments are passing, are disappearing. Even real, what we call reality, the present moment that we put so much emphasis on, is also escaping all the time. You know, you, as soon as you've touched the present moment, it's the next one that arrives. You know? and, and, so, and so I think that what you anchor in is the, maybe the acceptance of impermanence and the, the, the dynamic nature of the world. You know? that so, so suddenly you don't have to have you know, there's an image that is used as, a, as if you were, what I'm saying now is as if I, I was asking you to jump uh, out of an airplane and you would find out, but there's no uh, parachute, you know, that's what you, in a way you could be saying, you know, but what if there's no parachute? Well, at some point you find out also that there's no ground. <laughs> you know, so it's not really a problem, it's just that there's movement, you know. And, and then you get okay with the fact that things are river-like, uh, dynamic in nature. You know. yeah. And the whole of the practice is to actually have a, uh, an appropriate response to this. Instead of wanting to have things stop or move faster than they are, you know, to actually have grace. Basically, it's just what we're doing, is developing a way to have grace around things. And so here, the way we do it with the practice uh, of metta is, you know, every time I say, be here, discover what is here right now, you know, and you'll discover something pleasant or something unpleasant or something neutral. That's basically what you'll discover. It might be felt in the heart, in the mind, or in the body, or however you would describe it, or a mix of all this, you know. But you'll find something there. It's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And can you be okay with this? Can you actually welcome this reality? Yeah. It doesn't mean you become a carpet, that's very important. It doesn't mean that you have to accept everything all the time. Mm -hmm. You also understand that you're, you're an agent. You, you have the capacity to interact with the world. You know? So you have acceptance for what is there, and you know that there's things that can be said, done. You know? And one of the things we do here is that we try to abandon fascination with thoughts of the past, you know, the way we get stuck in fascination about me and what I want and, and say like, hey, what's actually happening here? It's just noise. Can that be just okay like this? It becomes extremely simple in a way. And out of that, often, intuition can arise more like, Instead of like, I have to decide if I'll do this with my job or not do this, and we get all agitated like crazy, calm down a bit and start being attentive and caring for, hey, my love, you're really worked up about this decision. It's not easy for you. And so many times I've seen something like this, you know, sitting with uh, quietness. Sometimes like, oh, I'm actually going to recommit to this. I'm actually going to let this go. You know? Or, Oh, there's nothing I can do about this right now. Oh, okay, we'll let it unfold you know, with great care. Mm. 
Um, you were saying it helps you sometimes to think about the fact that everyone has their own path. I think that's what you said. Yeah. yeah maybe you didn't say path, but um, well, the first thing I thought of is I think that that works for me when it's someone who I feel is generally a good person, but is maybe making decisions that I don't agree with. Yeah. But sometimes I feel like people are really bad. Yeah. And how do you, or, or really manipulative, or just really, it seems like everything they do is hurting everybody. So how do you, are you able to think, yeah, that person's on their own path, good for them in that situation? Like, it seems really hard. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is the practice of equanimity, and even in these cases, the, peop the person that you like it or not is making their own choices, you know. It doesn't exclude the fact that you can speak up and say, you know, you should, I encourage you to think about what you're about to do, you know, or I actually don't agree, you know. You can put information there, you know, and, and uh, in many ways there's many things one can do, but that you could actually find a balance of heart in the midst of the, the situation where there's somebody doing something that is really not useful. Or it will require equanimity. The fact that you'll understand that this person is responsible for their action, you know, and you for yours, you know, and that if you produce hatred towards that person, you're producing hatred in that person that you are, you know, and that's what you're training, you know. And so is that the best course of action, or is there another way to go about it? And this is a practice, you know, it's not like a decision again, like, okay, let me be equanimous about this person abusing everybody around them, mm -hmm. you know. It's not like this, but there is a deep understanding that they'll make their choices, you know. There might be some places where I can actually uh, avoid, you know, uh, keep them from doing some things, you know, but there's many places where I won't, you know. They, they have, they have the control or the lack of control on their own mind. And we have to accept this deeply. And again, acceptance doesn't mean I don't do anything. It's, it's a way to engage with, with, uh, uh, without losing energy, without losing sleep in a way. Just that, you know, tossing and turning all night long about somebody else's action, you know. So what can I do? What? And it is a practice. It's not easy to do. But um, in the classic um, uh, phrases of equanimity, uh, uh, this is what it says. Uh, it can be I am or you are, but you could think you are the owner of your actions. You are born out of your action, related to your action. Whatever you do, for good or for ill, of that you will be the heir. And it can, it's the same thing for me. I am the owner of my action. My action, here in Buddhist uh, psychology, is what I do with my mind, my actions of mind, thoughts, production of thoughts, my action of, of action in the, you know, my action gestures in, in the body, and my speech. So, I am the, this is very, this is, this is very deep. I am the owner of my actions, born of my action. This is, it's not just like, I will get the result of my action. I am my action. I be, I'm born, I become my action. If I train resentment, I become resentful. And science apparently is going along with that. It's saying, if this is what you train yourself in, this is what you become, you know? I, and 2,600 years ago, you are born of your actions. That's why you want to be aware of your actions. Most of the time, we're not. We're actually running on automatic. It's just going from one conditioning, one habitual way to be, to another one, you know, and in a kind of hectic way. So, <laughs> I make it very dramatic. <laughs> if um, I understand then, if I want to develop a practice of equanimity, do I do the five stages the same as meta and use those of the categories of people? Yes. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. uh, with equanimity, I can't remember exactly what's the, the process, but um, I don't know if it's taught like this. With, but definitely you want to do it with all categories of being. Uh, but I know, in the, for example, in the practice of compassion, 
you would start with somebody who's actually suffering. You know, the first person is somebody who, that you can think, like when we did Mudita yesterday, the altruistic joy, it, we started with somebody who had some happiness in their life, you know. So it was, it was not like self-benefactor, uh, mm -hmm. it was somebody who's happy <coughs> that you can think of. Yeah. So the order is different then, yeah. but, but still yeah. the same five? Yeah, you could do that. And for me, I've done it mainly for myself, and I'll tell you just one little uh, sentence that I came up with and had uh, sealed approved by uh, <laughs> my teachers. And the, the sentence that I spend a lot of time uh, repeating for myself to correct some under false understanding that I had was, my happiness depends my my happiness depends on my response, not on the circumstances of my life. Because in my mind, it was so tied together that what's happening to me is my happiness lies in that. And there was a need for a correction, which was my response is where lies my happiness, not in the circumstances. Because the circumstances, I will not... Sometimes I will have control over it, but many times I won't, you know. And so, you know, uh, just maybe a little personal story here is uh, um, almost 20 years ago now, I learned, and I was young, 20, uh, 25 years old or so, that I learned that I was HIV positive. So, and at that time, it meant death, basically, you know, in, within a few years. And for many years, I thought that this was a bad situation to be in, that my happiness was really related to the having, you know, my unhappiness was related to the circumstances. And slowly with this practice, I, be, I started to understand that actually, no, it's the way I hold the circumstances. I cannot change that piece right now, I, at least, you know. But I, there's a way that I can respond that's very important. If I respond with hating, that disease, with blaming myself or hating myself, or I don't know, there may, there may be so many ways that I could do it unskillfully, but to actually say like, okay, so what is actually there? This is what's there. You know? What's the best response around that? And I mean, I can make it even a little gory for us, you know, to make it more real. Sometimes that comes with, let's the word out, a lot of diarrhea. So I can be miserable because there's diarrhea. Or I can find what is the best way, what is the response? Well, the response is to take care of this in the best way and probably to bring some acceptance because that's not something I have control over totally, you know? And so what is the best way to be with this? How can I be with this gracefully? Yeah. Yeah. And maybe it'll lead me to a last uh, little story is uh, one time I mean for many years I, I was spending time just thinking you know if I didn't have that disease I wouldn't need refrigerated uh, medication so I could actually go travel in uh, Asia like my friends do you know or I could do this or if I didn't have that I could meet somebody because they you know they wouldn't just make things so complex or if I didn't have that blah 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 you know and I kept thinking of a life without that, you know? And that was a lot of, um, I, I considered it be, being a, a uh, would you say, a respite in my life. I would take a break and just dream of the other life, you know? Wow, imagine, like, I could actually do this and do that and feel like this and not, not be, you know, hiding or be, you know, feel guilty for some reason, you know? And I would just think about this, this is how it would be. One time I was on retreat and I had taken a little break on the cushion like this, you know, a little break from my miserable life. And I was gone in my dreamed life, my fictional, made-up, generated life. And I was just thinking like, oh yeah, if I didn't have the HIV, I would... And then suddenly I just, you know, came back to reality because that's what I was training myself to do. And so I just came back here. And suddenly I had this clarity that I didn't have before this is not helping me. Because every time I go there, this is a fictional life, but I compare it with a real life. And this one is only pleasurable, you know, there's no, there's no wins in there, you know, it's, it's only good stuff, you know, it keeps going this way. Gain, pleasure, you know, 
uh, you know, what is it? Not blame, but the other one? Praise. Praise, you know, it's, it's only blowing this way, you know. <laughs> and when I come back here, it's very different, you know. And it makes me miserable because I'm always comparing life to the other life, you know. And I thought, well, this is not for my benefit. This is not for my freedom. I'm going to actually stop doing this. I'm going to go even further because now I've been doing years of thinking of the other life. Now I'm going to actually marry my life. I'm going to start cherishing this life. You know, when I go to bed in the, at night, I'm going to go to bed with this life. And when I wake up in the morning, I'm going to wake up with this life. And commit to this life, crooked as it, as it is, you know. And then I just did that. I married my life. <laughs> it didn't work perfectly, you know, we're in, <laughs> we're in a process, you know. <laughs> but there's something that switched there. It was like, okay, let me take this life on instead of wanting another life. And this is very moment to moment. I'm sitting here, and this is what I find. Somebody with a little anxiety or somebody with a little ache, you know. Can I be with this instead of the other version with, where this wouldn't be there? Can I be engaged with this? And I even see that sometimes I enter conflict with people and I enter willingly, meaning like instead of resenting the situation, resenting the other person, it's like, okay, conflict will arise, misunderstanding will arise. How can I do this gracefully? How can I engage in the process of not understanding what, or not being happy with what was said or in a way that is fully engaged with that because it's going to happen in life. And the way that I think about it sometimes is maybe less now because the, the situation is good for me with the HIV, but for a long time I was thinking it's, it's a little bit like if I, I lived with um, a spear, is that the way you call it, that was planted like this, you know, and, and it means every time I want to move, want to go out the door, want to get in the car, you know, there's this spear that is in the way, you know, and it, it makes sort of a strange life, you know, you, people say, oh, do you, well, I can't because, you know, like, there's a spear, <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, and I'm the only one seeing it, and people forget it half of the time, but I have to act with it, you know, and I have to be, and, uh, and at some point I thought, well, why not, you know, why not live a life with a spear on the side, you know, if I manage to do this gracefully, I think that would be a life well lived. It would be, uh, it would be something of beauty, you know. So can I live with my crooked life? And it's, it's. I think it's a beautiful thing to do. And in the same way, I sit here, and sometimes I want to be intelligent, and the intelligence just doesn't sort of show up, you know. Something <laughs> the mind is, the mind is paralyzed, or it's, you know, uh, uh, you know, foggy or something, and it's like, oh. Can I be with a foggy mind? Is that, a, you know, do I have to resent this, hate myself, judge myself, or can I? It's one of the things that happen. I don't have control over what happens inside completely, nor outside, you know? And is it possible to be with this in this way? And I think it is, you know? Or it's a good endeavor, you know, to actually uh, think of uh, there be a moment where I'll die and think, well, I was there, you know, and with things in the best way. <coughs> possible. Okay, so these are a few thoughts about this practice, again, meant to be uh, helpful in some way, so I hope uh, there's a little something in there for you. And again, you know, what doesn't fit with, you know, what you don't like, doesn't feel right, true, <coughs> you don't have to, uh, you know, use it as you want. So let's just take a moment here. So maybe I'll finish with um, reading to you the formal uh, words of the practice of forgiveness. Say, if I have hurt you intentionally or unintentionally through thoughts, speech, or action, I ask for your forgiveness. 
if you have hurt me intentionally or not through your thoughts, speech or actions, I forgive you or I forgive you to the extent that I can right now or I have the intention to forgive you. And lastly, I forgive myself for all the ways that I have harmed myself or others through thought, thoughts, speech or actions. I offer forgiveness to the extent that I can right now. Thank you very much for your attention and consideration. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.